0: Okay, here we are now again, August the 9th, 2015, lecture discussion number 207 on the book of Romans and other passages yet to be determined. Before I start, uh, I I wrote all of this, as you guys know, on the internet especially, I write these things myself, I write them by hand, they take me a long time. There's uh, Today I've got over 6,000 words here, and it worries me. Um, I'll put that disclaimer out right in the beginning because I know I don't have time uh, to keep going back and reading the text. And as those of you who have been following along both here and on the Internet, uh, I'm going in order as best I can. And everything that I say today assumes that you have a fundamental understanding of what I said last week. And I know that's not the case. So it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. And I'll try to do the best I can, but it may seem disjointed. When I write all the time, as I did in this one, does that make any sense? Uh, there it is on just the first page I look at. That's not a good sign, typically. So anyway, that disclaimer, just to get it out of the way um, so that you know. If Please uh, take the time. If you're on the Internet following this, uh, get uh, Lecture 207, read Mark 11, 1 through 12, 17. Um, and that will help you a lot to understand what I'm doing today. Recently, I uh, I get a lot of this kind of stuff now, and I received a couple of questions as to the relevance of the vineyard parable in the book of Romans because I'm spending time in the vineyard parable. Here is the here is the order. Um, the vineyard parable is number six in uh, eight items that I have brought out inside of Mark 11:1 uh, to 12:17. And somebody wanted to know what's the relevance of the vineyard parable to the book of Romans because this is, after all, a book of Romans study, and they saw no evidence that Romans is anywhere near the, the vineyard parable. And, and they asked me questions uh, uh, like that. Where's the relevance? Actually, to be more accurate, uh, do you have a point is what they were asking. Where, where are you going uh, what are you thinking? You, you, all the stuff I always get—you, you, you've heard them all, I'm sure—and thought them all. Usually, I, I'm actually delighted to get those kinds of responses because I have a, manic- a meticulously conceived uh, lesson plan, in spite of the evidence to the contrary. And because I, I I'm uh, being the highly trained professional that I am, I know, I know where the vineyard fits in Romans. And I know that when you figure out how the vineyard parable fits, that's an exciting thing to know. Uh, and when you see the vineyard parable and the sign of the abducted bride, or if you want to call it the rapture, go ahead. But it's far more complicated than just the word rapture. Leaving out the, the, uh, the abducted, the fact that the bride is taken, it's the taking of the bride, the sign of the taking of the bride, uh knowing that and how that fits in the vineyard parable is also quite uh, exciting i believe and also as you know the sign of the wife and the uh, and the abducted bride how they both relate to romans 9 10 and 11 when you have that that's there's a permanency now that takes hold with romans 9 10 and 11 so i i kind of like the cat calls from the bleachers I have people that actually say these things to me, and I have. As you know, I've had people hold up signs in my lectures. Who cares? I bring that up a lot. I've gotten, hey, idiot, before. So uh, to paraphrase, uh, it didn't happen this week, but hey, idiot, where's the Book of Romans in the Book of Romans study? Uh, That's uh, pretty much something that I get commonly. Uh, 207 lectures on the Book of Romans, half of them on gravity, interferometry, and and germ cell plasm, blah, blah, blah. And of course my favorite, hey balding one-eyed fat man. Is it too much to ask for one verse a year from the book of Romans in the book of Romans? (laughs) In the book of Romans study. Okay. And then somebody sent me this cliffside Roman study where the first rule is never talk about the book of Romans. (laughs) And actually I am talking about the book of Romans. We are in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that is why we're studying the parable of the vineyard, as well all of Mark 11:1 through 12:17. <clears throat> and seriously, as you know, my entire purpose does indeed want—I do want you to that are listening to me. I want you to actually ask that question: Where is the book of Romans? Because, again, we are at Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. Uh, I I had Glory put, uh, I don't know what she put in the bulletin here today. Um, But I wanted you to, uh, Romans 11, I think she put in the bulletin. I want you to know that's where we are. The rejection of Christ by the religious order of Israel is Romans chapter 11, essentially. I hope you can see that tied to the parable of the vineyard. Israel's has a need, Israel's need for the saving truth of Christ uh, and Christ's ultimate saving of his chosen nation. That's 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. Romans 11, 11 says this, I say then, have they, the, the Israelites, the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their trespass to provoke them to jealousy, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. What the Apostle Paul is writing, uh, the Holy Spirit directing the Apostle Paul to write, is that salvation coming to the Gentiles is going to provoke the nation of Israel, the remnant Jews, the faithful remnant Jews, to salvation. When you see the word salvation in Scripture, who is that? That's Christ. That's His name. Christ has come to the Gentiles and that will provoke Israel To jealousy. The, the bridegroom, I'm sorry, the husband of the wife is now the bridegroom to the, to the Gentiles. Does that make sense? There's the first time I'm going to say that today. There's 50 more times of that. I'm looking at you. But that's what's happening here. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. Israel is going to be redeemed, going to be saved, and the wife, Israel, will be provoked to jealousy by the pride of the church. And jealousy is an appropriate term if you look at it from just a human relationship standpoint. If I have somebody that um, I have a relationship with and I leave that relationship because that person has left me, that's essentially Israel and God, they rejected him, and I go to another relationship, well, I'll provoke jealousy. That's the terms he's using, isn't it? It's, it's uh, a symbol, if you will, an analogy of what's happening Romans eleven eleven again. I ask this because that's what it says. The point of of salvation, one of the major points besides the salvation of the individuals, but the the general salvation of the Gentiles is to provoke Israel. So the question becomes: Has Israel been provoked? Salvation has come to the Gentiles for two thousand years. Has Israel been provoked? To jealousy. Have you talked to any of them? I do all the time. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. They have not been provoked to jealousy, have they? So the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles hasn't provoked them. And again, if it hasn't provoked them, and I think it has not provoked them, what's the next question then? When? When does Israel get provoked? To jealousy, what does provoked to jealousy mean? How specifically does this provoking of jealousy happen? What event then removes the blindness of Israel, the blindness of the wife, Romans 11 seven and provokes them to mourn for the rejection of Christ, Zechariah 12:11. What event causes Israel to be jealous and turn towards Christ and mourn? If you read Romans 11, 26, it says, Romans 11:26, it says, all of Israel will be saved. By the way, that does not mean all of Israel will be saved. It means all of Israel that survives the tribulation, it's a tribulational reference. All of Israel that gets to the 75-day interval, the blessing of the 75-day interval, all of those Jews, the faithful remnant that gets there, will be saved. There will be no unsaved Jews going into the millennium. That's Romans eleven twenty six. That is a end of the tribulational verse. It's a seventy five day interval reference. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now add that back to the the mystery of Israel's blindness, the hardening in part. I don't have room today to put a lot of stuff on the board, but know that Israel has a blindness. That's mystery number seven of the of the. Uh, Of the seven, of the eleven mysteries, okay? Seven of eleven. There, that'll help you. Seven, eleven, never mind. Thanks for laughing, Becky. Mystery number seven, the hardening in part. I cannot, I cannot emphasize that phrase, in part, the blindness in part to Israel. Continues, it says, Israel will not be provoked to jealousy. The hardening or the blindness in part will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So I have two extraordinarily, greatly significant words there that I have to define. What does in part mean and what is the fullness of the Gentiles? Fullness is a numerical term. The fullness of the Gentiles is a total number. When the total number of Gentiles is reached, then Israel will be provoked to jealousy, and their blindness in part will begin to dissipate. That's what Romans 11.26 is telling us, almost all of Romans 11, frankly. So I have a total number that are within the church, that are within the bride. When that number is reached, what do you say happens? What does the Bible say happens when the total number is reached? The abduction of the bride occurs. The bride is taken. It's the taking of the bride. So the sign of the taking of the bride occurs when the total number, the fullness of the Gentiles, has come in. and The divorced wife then is provoked to jealousy. Now read the order of Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I believe that you will see the olive tree in Romans 11, 13, 16, and the vineyard parable. Um, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 12:9 through uh, Mark 12, 9 through 12. That's the same subject. The vineyard explains the olive tree in Romans. And remember, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vineyard, those are three aspects of the sign of the nation of Israel. Whenever you encounter one, you're now going to consider all of them. So if you find the olive tree in in Scripture, you should start looking for the fig tree references as well. And the vine, you you look for the fig, you you find the the fig, you look for the olive. They all you have to look for all of them at the same time whenever you encounter one. And that's what we're currently attempting. Okay. Now. This will make people mad out there. I've just firmly established that the parable of the vineyard is a Romans 11 correlation. I don't think there's any dispute about that. It's an accompaniment. And then I added in the seventh mystery, the hardening in part, the blindness of Israel as a significant evidence that the sign of the taken bride is that which provokes Israel to jealousy. Thus making the sign of the taking of the bride... Israeli or Jewish or Israel, nation of Israel, wife-specific, and thus, therefore, not universally recognized. That's the case. Oops. I would get that. Hang on. First, I have to eat medicine to get drink medicine. Fortify myself to be able... uh. I dropped, for those of you on the internet, the most high and holy Expo dry erase marker with a low order odor and chisel dynamic. Okay, now I have it back in my right hand again, firmly gripped for another two minutes. My point is is that it is obvious to me, I, I believe that the, the, the logic, not just the logic, but just the process is um, overwhelming, that the rapture is not universally seen, which means the world does not see it. It is not a sign for the world. It is a sign for the bride. I'm sorry, a sign for the wife. And that's Israel. Okay, so we can move along a little bit, further continue. Our merry little band of wanderers, traversing we shall go. When we last left off, we had correctly connected the trap of the Caesar's coin to the parable of the vineyard. That's what we did last week. And if you haven't read that section, it's going to be difficult for you. I'll do my best to keep you going, but it's, it's there's a lot of information here. And hopefully you remember from our list, those of you who were here last Sunday, and not very many of that, but it all bears repeating, this list that I have. This is the order. The first thing Christ does is he takes a donkey. Okay? He has a donkey, he that he wants. God says... I have need of a young, unridden donkey. And he takes that donkey for his entry into Jehovah Jireh Salaam. Right? He's going to the city of Jehovah Jireh Salaam. That's what he has named his city. So he's got a donkey to go into his city. Jehovah Jireh Salaam means God provides himself, or God provides peace, which is the same thing. Or God provides salvation. It is what... Uh, Abraham said during the uh, the symbolism of the offering of Isaac, right, in the very same mountain that Christ is crucified on, in the exact same place. That mountain, of course, is called Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides himself, uh, or God provides Himself for salvation. God provides Himself for peace, and that, of course, has been shortened over time to Jerusalem. So that's the first thing that he does. He wants a donkey to go into his city. And then the next thing God does, the next thing Christ does, is he inspects his temple. Following that, Christ inspects his fig tree. Whenever you see fig tree, what should you do now? Start finding your olive tree. Start finding your vineyard. Know that that is a national symbol of Israel. So he inspects his... Let me back up. Takes the donkey, enters Jerusalem, number one. Number two, inspects his temple. Number three, the fig tree inspection. Number four, after he does these three, he begins the cleansing of the temple. He begins to... uh, Remove the money changers from his temple. That's what he does next. This order, absolutely critical to know what order he's going through and why he's doing it. I said cause and effect or facilitation. Whatever words you want to... The taking of the donkey comes before the inspection of the temple. If you want to think of it this way, the fact that he took a donkey and entered into Jerusalem means the next thing he must do in a human sense, because he's God... The next logical thing to do after he's done that is inspect the temple. The next logical thing to do after that is inspect the fig tree. Now it's time to cleanse the temple. If he did it in any other order, it wouldn't make as much, well, it it would make sense, I guess. But it wouldn't make this perfect sense that it does now. Does that make sense? Twice. He goes in and he removes money changers from his temple. Money changers are people that take Roman money and convert it to Jewish money. That's critical to know that. That was covered last week. That'll help you understand what's going on here at Caesar's coin. That's exactly what happened. Let me quickly do that, because I know there's quite a few that don't, don't know. Caesar's coin was the only coin acceptable... By the Romans as a tax, the Jews won't touch them because they're pagan. They have a symbol of, they have an image of Caesar on them, where he calls himself God and he calls himself the chief priest. So, high priest and God, those are those are two things that only Christ can call himself. The Jews don't even know that. They just know that it's wrong. So they wouldn't touch it, so they needed somebody to change Caesar's coin in, or Jewish coins into Caesar's coins so that they could pay the taxes and not get executed right Money changers first thing Jesus does is he removes the money changers from his temples those involved in the converting of Roman coins into Jewish coins and for, and also for the main purpose uh, of they were taking that money as well and selling. Pharisee-approved sacrificial animals. You could not get a sacrificial animal for your sin, for your redemption, unless the Pharisees had put a stamp on it. That was the inspection process. You now understand, I hope, what's going on in Hebrews 5. Next, after that, is the John the Baptist question. God asked the Pharisees a John the Baptist question. And then, now, the parable of the vineyard, and then the cornerstone reference, Psalm 118 And finally we end with Caesar's going. And I can't emphasize this enough. I can't over repeat it. All of those events are intricately related. Not only is there a cause and effect, uh, a comportment, a presence, um, there's a precise order. Each constituent here, here, each event is interconnected with the others. And once again, when you grab that, when it really finally hits you, what, how he wove all of this together and did it in an incredible way, you understand that whoever designed your body, whoever designed the ecology, whoever designed the uh, universe, the weather, whoever did all of that wrote this book. And last Sunday... We established that Caesar's coin was immediately to be evaluated with the cleansing of the temple. Because I have the chasing out of the money changers and I have money changing. So I immediately can go, these two are, are talking about the same thing. The reason he got rid of the money changers and the reason uh, he asked for the denarius had to do with the money changing. Both contain money changing. Um, as, a, as an aside, quickly, I have a little note here. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Incredible verse there, as all of them are incredible. It says this, Or do you not know that your body is the tabernacle? Put it in a better way for you. Maybe better, more understandable. Do you not know? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? What's the implication? Yeah, you don't know. Do you not know? You don't know. Your body is this temple. Don't you know that? There's a picture of me. In most Bibles right there. Under idiot. Look, idiot. Don't you know? No. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The answer is no. We don't know. He lives inside, therefore we live eternally. He sees what we write on the temple walls, Ezekiel 8, 9 through 10. You are a temple. You are representative of this temple. And you write on your walls, just like they did in Ezekiel. 9 through 10. Do you know what they put their walls in Ezekiel 9 through 10? Did you ever read it? They wrote a bunch of pagan images. Mostly reptiles. Lots of frogs. In, you couldn't see it from the outside. Inside the Holy of Holies and inside the Holy Place, the priests got in there and they wrote one side inside the temple, inside the Holy Place. They just covered it with pagan symbols. Covering your temple on the inside with pagan symbols is a bad idea. Do you not know that he sees it? What, do you think you're getting away with it? Think you're going to hide it? Again, the rhetorical implication is no, no. We don't know that we're temples and we don't think he catches us and we don't even know we don't know. It's an unknown unknown, right? Obviously, we individually need to be likewise cleansed. The money changers' tables overturned in our lives. That's the end of the applicational portion of the lecture today. Just in case you think I don't do applicational sermons. Okay. Also, last week, the image of God. I have whose? I got an image. Whose image is on this coin? He asked. That's a Genesis. One twenty six reference becomes immediately obvious that he's trying to make you understand that you're not just the temple of his or you're not just being representative of the temple or the temple representative of you. It'll go both directions. But when he asks whose image is on there, that's immediately talking about the fact that human beings are made in the image of God. Right. Old Testament reference. It's a reference to uh, that, to, um, to God, the things that are God's. By the way, as is Genesis fourteen nineteen to twenty one, I said that last week, where I have Abraham, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom arguing over who gets the money and who gets the people, and that tells you that God. And Abraham says to the king of Sodom, clearly Satan in that picture, you take the the money. I'll take the people. That is exactly what Christ does with Caesar's coin. So the the reference that you need to read when you're trying to study what that coin means is Genesis 14. The whole war with Shedal Amalur and Abraham, right? So we are essentially God's. Coins, if you want to think of it, he calls us things. We're God's things, and you can look at a coin. I don't happen to have any coins. Lori takes them from me because why? I'll play with them during the lecture and make funny noises, and they end up in the recording. And Ben gets frustrated with me, um, but I don't have any coins, and um, for that reason. But if I did, you would see images stamped on them, wouldn't you? Images stamped on our our currency. Okay, he doesn't want. Currency with his image on it? What does he want with his image on it? He's already stamped his image on what thing? Us. People. So the relationship between Caesar's coin and God's things or God's coins, if you want to think of them that way, it's okay. I have have Caesar's coins which are money. I have God's coins which are people. He demands that those things with his image... Come back to him and stand before him. There is to be no money changing. And we're going to have to define what money changing means now. Why God goes and throws those people out. Not just because of the sacrificial sense, but there's another, the fact that they were selling salvation. That's absolutely the case. But there's more to it than that. And I said last week as well, it would be absolutely to appropriate. Uh, I'm Struggle today, aren't I? It would be absolutely appropriate to translate, uh, to God the, uh, render the things that are God's. Because he says that. Give to, give to Caesar those things that have his image on them. Give to God the people that have his, God's image on them. It would be perfectly appropriate to translate that. Give me my fruit. Give that to Caesar, give me my fruit, because as you know, the parable of the vineyard is all about the fact that there is no fruit there. There's no wine there. He goes to get his wine, his portion, and there isn't any. God, the owner, the son owner, comes for his fruit, but the fig tree had none. The vineyard had none, not one drop of wine in the wine vat either. So that means that no one was saved. When Christ came to Israel, there was no salvation there. Why not? Because the vine dressers or the tenant farmers, the Pharisees, the religious order, had destroyed salvation as much as they could. He calls them a brood of vipers. none saved eventually jesus is outside of the city right that's where they cast the son owner outside of the city mark 12:8 they don't bury him they kill him they don't bury him in the in the in jerusalem they throw him outside now you can't kill god so you have to understand the symbolism in the parable there by the way jesus outside of the city is exactly the same as revelation 3:20 Where he comes to the church in the Laodicean age and he knocks on the door. Why does he knock on the door? Because he's not inside the church at the end of the age. He's not inside Jerusalem when he comes. There isn't anybody there. There's no salvation there. And then he asks that incredible question to the Pharisees. And they got it. They knew that the parable was about them. He says... I've come, you have killed all of my prophets, and you seek to kill me. I have no fruit in this whole place, not one drop of wine. There's nothing on the fig tree. There's not a grape here. It's completely barren. What then will the rejected owner's son do He asked. Okay? Let's recap a little bit. It's his vineyard. It's his fruit. It's his temple. It's his things or his coins. His people. It's his donkey. It's his agents or his prophets. It's his fig tree. There's a theme here, right, Vern? It's all his. Now you can start associating that which should be categories. Categorized with what? So you can do what I did here. Money changing in Caesar's coin, money changing in the temple. Inspection of the fig tree, no figs. Inspection of the vineyard, no fruit. Okay, John the Baptist, cornerstone. Cornerstone, entering Jerusalem. I can start to associate them. Now, I did that for you really quickly because it's obvious to me and it'll be obvious to you pretty soon. Just hang with me. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to continue to add to your burden. I hope, which, by the way, is a donkey reference. And I've already assigned the donkey to three things, haven't I? I a bunch of. Well, let me say this: I've I've assigned the donkey to the things. I've got the donkey going down here to the coins, as well as to the cornerstone. Why in the cornerstone and the donkey connected? All of it's connected. Everything's connected. You can't not have anything connected. But just just really quickly, and I'll, I'll get into this maybe hopefully if I get that far. Why do I know the donkey and the cornerstone is the same thing? Because when the donkey and him are coming into the city of Jerusalem, the people all scream what? Psalm 118. Cornerstone is Psalm 118. He tries to make it as obvious as he can, but we don't seem to find it ever. That's a real shame for us. But the donkey reference and the coins, I've already connected it together, haven't I? As distinguished from Caesar's coin. The donkey is not Caesar's coin, the donkey is God's coin. Don't commingle the coins, that would be money changing. I've gotten quite a few donkey questions. I have to admit. I've got a bunch from you guys and they, they come in, they're coming in fast and period. And I've been a little reluctant so far to lay out why did he want a donkey? Because this is God doing this. He wants a donkey. Why? He could pick any animal. He could have picked an ox. Hey, why not a lamb? He could have done anything. He could have had a horse. He could have rode in the chariot. He could have been in a cart. He could have walked in with nothing. But he wants a donkey. And not just any donkey. He's got a donkey that he knows about. Because he's what? Omniscient God. And I've been, as I said, I don't want to just lay it out there for you. I wanted you to kind of work your way into it. I've also been asked to clarify the John the Baptist issue. More so than what I normally do, which is the obvious Malachi John the Baptist is the very last prophet and then Christ. So that takes John the Baptist and ties him directly to the parable of the vineyard because the parable of the vineyard says that the last uh, one will be Christ. And John the Baptist is universally recognized as the last prophet of Israel. So the next one that comes after him has got to be the Messiah, the son owner, the owner's son. So that's an absolute evidence that Christ is the Messiah. And Christ says to the Pharisees, he asks them, did I send John the Baptist? That's the question he asks. He says, is John the Baptist from heaven or is he of men? What he's saying there is, did I send John the Baptist? Is John the Baptist from me? Is John the Baptist mine? Yes or no? See, oh no. Do that joke for Lori. She'll get it. She listens every Sunday. Hi, Lori. Highly questionable. I am very intrigued. None of that makes any sense to you. But Lori will laugh on on Sunday next week. The Pharisees say, we don't know if John the Baptist is from you, if you sent him or not. We don't know. They thought about it for a while. And their plan was, by the way, you need to know, let me keep this in mind. The Pharisees rehearse everything they do. They don't, they have meeting after committee meeting. They get it all planned out. They got 15 guys to figure out what to say. They had it all worked out. They ask, is John, or no, they ask, by what authority do you do these things? What authority did you take that donkey? Did they know what the donkey was for? They did. They recognized immediately why he had the donkey. By what authority did you put that donkey there? By what authority did you get rid of the money changers? By what authority did you overturn the tables? By what authority did you curse a fig tree? And he said, "Did I send John the Baptist? Yes or no? Answer me." he said. So they had a big rehearsal. They thought they had him trapped. And he hits him with the John the Baptist question absolutely destroyed them with it, and they get together in their little committee, and they go, why do we answer this? He's got us. We didn't think of this. It's your fault. I always assume that somebody on the Pharisee committee gets executed when they go back. Whoever said, this is going to work, we got him cornered, and then they get massacred. I think that guy takes it. Pretty soon, I'd stop giving advice. But in any event, that's just my imagination running amuck as it always does. The Pharisees say, they decide, that they're going to say, we don't know. Then Christ says to him, because you answer, we don't know. Because what is the answer they gave? We don't know. What is that? That's a lie. Absolute lie. I know, but congenital liars and congenital cheaters always do the same thing. They always lie and they always cheat. They can't stop themselves. That's why we call them congenital cheaters and congenital liars. The only thing for congenital liars to do to be successful, I understand, is to go into political office. That seems to be all we can get. It works. That's why they keep doing it. Because you lie, Christ to them, said to them, because the Pharisees did know that John the Baptist was a prophet sent to the tenant farmers by God. See how I worked out all that together now? Christ would not tell them that he was in fact the owner of the vineyard. Because they lied and said, we don't know. They did know. They did know that John the Baptist was coming from the owner of the vineyard. They did know that they're the tenant farmers in that barrel parable. They did know that they intended to kill John the Baptist and they did know this was the son owner and they were going to kill him too. But they did not know that the son owner was in fact God himself. Hopefully that intermixing made sense this week. Because that's what I did, didn't I? I intermixed the parable of the vineyard with the John the Baptist question. Hopefully that begins to make sense eventually. That's four. makes senses already, I know. I intentionally fused and blended the pieces together to illustrate the utility of doing so, the ap- applicability of doing so. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to look and just start saying, uh, Christ came to inspect his fig tree in his vineyard where he found the tenant farmers who had a whole bunch of Caesar's coins in their pockets? I want you to begin to recognize it's all one thing. To repeat again, all of Mark 11, 1 through 12:17 relates. I want you to see it as eight segments that build upon each other. The Caesar Caesar's coin explains why he took the donkey. For example, the cornerstone provides information, additional information to the John the Baptist question. Let me try to explain that, because you see, how am I doing? Good. You see, the builders rejected the chief cornerstone. You all know the song, you all know the verse, Psalm 118, right? The builders rejected the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone means the head of the corner. I've done a lot of foundations, a lot more foundations I'd ever care to admit. Hundreds of them. They killed me every single time. Matt sitting in here, last one we did, we thought we were going to never get out of that hole. We've done them in the dead of winter and froze to death. We've done them in the dead of summer and burned up. They're horrible. Don't do foundations. But you start in one corner, you pick a corner. What do you do in that corner? You got to get that corner perfect. You begin your frame from that corner. There's a chief cornerstone, the head of the corner, the perfect straight stone from which now the rest of the building depends on that straightness and the perfection of that cornerstone. That's why Christ calls himself that. I am the head stone. The head of the corner. If the cornerstone is flawed, the fig tree has no fruit. Makes sense. That's five of those. If the cornerstone is flawed, there is no wine. If the cornerstone is flawed. There's no image of God on His things. I said that badly. But I'm trying to get you to understand it in any way I can. I'll fix it next week for all those on the internet that want to criticize me for that. And Yes, again, I did it intentionally. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing it together on purpose. If the head of the corner is not the owner of the vineyard, then God did not send John the Baptist that's the best i can do hopefully that will get you going in the right direction not only is is the passage mark 12 7, 1 through 17 uh, 11 1 through 12 17 completely interdependent and interwoven and intermeshed you pick whatever words you want you wish this inseparability is beyond explanation how can anyone no one can write this this way the pharisees Again, had a rehearsal. They rehearsed what they were going to say word for word. They had a plan. They almost were like walking forward with little scripts in their hands. That's the way I want you to think of them. Pharisee number one says this. Pharisee number two is memorizing. Number three says this. They had it all worked out. and They did it all in secret. Nobody knew their plan. Nobody talks to anybody. They are a wonderful little coitured club of great secrecy and function. It's impossible to catch them. They're very, very smart men. They're the son of the viper. Their father is the great Satan. And they, this inseparability dawned on them at the end of it, and they were stunned, shocked. It says marvel, but the word implies this shocking astonishment. They realized what just happened to them is not. Possible mathematically. How did this happen? Mark twelve seventeen. That's why they're amazed. They began to get this inseparability, this interconnection of all of these things. Because they knew about every one of them. And by the way, they, they witnessed a perfectly constructed response from Christ. One in which they freely participated in. They were participating in it thinking they had some kind of control over it. And, and, and their whole purpose was to disrupt uh, Christ while he's uh, walking through Israel. Yet, w- Jesus builds, builds a frame, and he incorporates the Pharisees' plan into his frame, if you will. He puts their evil intent into his system while he is answering what they think are unanswerable paradoxes. They considered them ins- unsolvable. Let me rephrase it a little bit, because it's so hard for me to get it through, I know. What happened here is that the Pharisees participated in, if you want to think of it this way, a scripted play that they organized and had as a marvelous trap and script, for lack of a better term. It's scripted. Everything they said and did was perfectly placed into the play in the right order, and, they, and they, yet they knew they had free will at all times while they're doing it. okay. So they take their little system and they bring it to Christ and they find out that what he did when he took the donkey perfectly fits their question. When he sent two guys to get a donkey, it's almost like he knew what their question was going to be because the fact that two guys went and got a donkey and he wrote it in and they all yelled Psalm 118 while writing riding it in absolutely destroyed their question on Caesar's coin. How could he have known that they were going to ask this question when he's riding on the donkey? That's what's happened here. They realize that they're part of the play. And Christ is in control of it. It's exactly, by the way, what happened at the crucifixion. Christ is on the cross. He says his seven things. The people under, underneath him finally realize, holy mackerel, honey child, this is in, this is in Psalm 22. We're in the play. We're, he's doing Psalm 22 and we're in it. We thought we came here of our own free will to scream these stupid things at him and we're actually in the Old Testament at Psalm 22. The Pharisees are doing the same thing. We're here to try to trap him about Caesar's coin. We're here to try to trap him about by what authority. And he puts us into the vineyard parable simultaneously with our little trick. And our trick fits perfectly into his parable. How did he get a parable that would fit us? How did he know? I hope I'm explaining that right. Just imagine you're in that circumstance. You come in and the person that you talk to has put you into something. And what your little piece that you worked on and you're so proud of that no one knows about but you is a perfect piece for his vineyard parable. that you don't even know about. Never heard before. The parable of the vineyard was occurring in real time as Christ was telling the parable. And the Pharisees realized it. They realized that they brought a coin. He says to them, Bring me a coin. They do it. That was not their plan. But they had one, as I said last week. Where did they get a coin that is supposed to be an anathema to them? How many of them do they have? They're pagan symbols. They're not even supposed to touch them. How many have they got? He says, Bring me a coin. They realized that they brought a coin that bore the image of Caesar to the owner of the vineyard. As they're handing the coin to, to Christ, they realize we just gave a coin to the owner of the vineyard. Uh-oh. Not good. We just handed a coin to the man, to the person, that's better. We just handed a coin to the person that took a donkey and wrote it into Jehovah Jireh Salaam. While, while people just happened to yell Psalm 118, oh no, he, we just handed a coin to a guy, to a person, to the person who quotes Psalm 118 just before he asked us for the coin. How does he know? Well, he's omniscient God. That's how he knows. And they they handed a coin that bore the image of Caesar to the owner of the vineyard. And it was their idea to do so. But it was exactly the point of the parable of the vineyard. So think about some of this for a moment. God says to the tenant farmers, bring me a denarius and tell me whose image and inscription is on the denarius. And they know that now after they did it. Oh no, we just we were living out the parable of the vineyard right after he told us about the parable of the vineyard. We're now doing the parable of the vineyard. And we were doing the parable of the vineyard while he was telling us the parable of the vineyard. They were astonished. And the tenant farmers brought to God a denarius, upon which is a man's image and a declaration that the Caesar is both God and high priest, which is, uh, which is not something they should even touch. They tell the people not to touch it, and yet they have a whole pocket full of it. They have bags full of it. That's why he calls them hypocrites. And they have all of these coins, but they do not have a single drop of wine. They do not have one single fig. They do not have any fruit. But boy, they sure got bags of coins. They're standing before Creator God with bags full of Roman coins. Roman coins. Their pockets full of them. By the way, hopefully you see the chief priest or the high priest and God on both sides of the coin. It's a mark. You have to have this coin in order to pay the taxes, right? It's an absolute mark. And on one side is the false prophet. On the other side, the Antichrist. Two pieces of the satanic triad, right? But They're standing before Creator God with bags full of Roman coins, and they have no fruit. And God does not want Roman Roman. You give the Roman coins back to Caesar. He doesn't want them. What are you supposed to have when you're the tenant farmer? You're supposed to have people. God wants people, Genesis fourteen, nineteen through twenty one. When God when Christ says, Bring me a denarius, what should the faithful tenant farmer have said to him? I don't have any denariuses, denarici, denari, hippopotami, whatever the plural of denarius is. He should have said, I only have fruit, it's all I got. Here's fruit, here's wine, here's figs. I don't have any. Roman coins. Pharisees had only worthless, stupid coins. Lesson one, when God asks you for his fruit, don't hand him a suitcase filled with paper. People love their paper, don't they? We all want to have more paper. God looks at it, it's molecularly, on a chemical basis, it is identical to this yellow stuff. Under a microscope, you can't tell the difference. Once you remove the colorant from it and the threads, it's all paper, burns. It's firewood. He wants people, you give him firewood. Won't work out so good. More application. But for today, consider the shock of the Pharisees. They had this plan. They discover that their plan is now part of a parable that's told back to them. How does that happen? Who can do this? Now let's ask some donkey questions because I promised Dana. Dana. I have three minutes to get Dana's donkey questions in. I've only got maybe a thousand words to go. (laughs) Why does God have need of of a young, unridden donkey? What is the meaning of God entering into Jerusalem on a donkey? What or whom does the donkey represent? The donkey is going to be equal to something here. Here's your choices. Okay? Donkey, is it the same as the tenant farmers? Is he riding the tenant farmers? Is the donkey the same as the coins of Caesar? Is he riding, if you will, the coins of Caesar? Is the donkey the same uh, of the images of God? Is he riding the images of God, the opposite of Caesar's coins, God's coin? Is the donkey John the Baptist? Is the donkey the sent prophets? Is the donkey the figs? Is the donkey the wine? Is the donkey the sign of the wife? Or is it the sign of the taken bride? There's your choices. How hard is this? Remember the solemn question of Mark twelve, nineteen. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And it says he will come and destroy the brood of vipers and give his vineyards vineyard to others. The Pharisees, the tenant farmers, the vine dressers, all they had was coins. He wants fruit. So he's going to destroy the vine dressers, the money changers, and he's going to give his vineyard to others. Who are the others? Who gets the vineyard? Is that the bride or the wife gets the vineyard? Notice the son owner does not, he does not destroy his vineyard. Lots of people will teach you that God has replaced his vineyard. He's destroyed it. No, he didn't. He replaced the vine dressers, he replaced the tenant farmers. Did not destroy, and it's pretty obvious that he did not. I can show you where it is on the map. If you have the right maps, there are some maps that refuse to put the nation of Israel today in their cartography. Now, the key, in my opinion, to the donkey question is that Christ sends two to untie the donkey. Why does it take, it's a joke, right? How many apostles does it take to untie a donkey? Apparently, it takes two. Why does it take two? Why does he send, oh, no, I dropped the pen again. I'm not going to go down and get it this time. Why does he take two to procure the donkey? And then he says, listen, I'm going to send it back to you after a delay. E.W. E. Ethelbert uh, W. Bullinger figured out, and so i got to credit him for this. Uh, he figured out that there is a terrific scriptural relationship between a donkey and time. So there's something to do with time. So Christ sends two to go get a donkey. By the way, when I brought up time, then what? where am I in now? What time? Where's the number one place I look for tribulationally that has anything to do with time? Clearly, it's the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony, right? Get to that next week. Two guys need two to untie the donkey, and then he says, I'll send it back without delay. After uh, some time. That's how this all began, right? starts with the donkey, untying it, telling them, I'll be bringing it back to you. But I need it. I need it for a while. Once we note this, we can now search the scriptures for the other donkeys and find the Old Testament compliments, right? But the way we have to do this is uh, we have to do it for the money changers. We've got to define money changers. Let me ask this question really quick. Why are money changers evil? Got to know that. Christ wants the donkey untied, and he's going to send it back after a while, or sort of immediately without delay, but he's going to send it back. There's a period of time. While God is riding the donkey into Jerusalem, people are reciting Psalm 118. That, of course, takes me to the cornerstone, Psalm 118. That brings me to the vineyard parable. Of course, where else in Scripture now is there an untying of a donkey? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Genesis 49:11 actually 8 through 12. So let's go to Genesis. This is the last words of Jacob to Judah. He says lots of things Jacob does to his sons. Has something for Asher, by the way. Should read what he says to Asher. I mentioned that to my lovely daughter-in-law who is not fat. I got away with that joke last week, and so I'm trying it again. (laughs) Let me read 8. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a young lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garment in blood, and clothed his, in the blood, in his clothes in the blood of grapes. Okay, the donkey is tied to a vine, I don't have time to finish it. Ask this question. Why is the donkey tied to Israel? His donkey's tied to Israel. Why did he tie it to Israel? Wouldn't the donkey do? If you took a donkey and you tied it to a grape vineyard, what will the donkey do? Start eating your grape vineyard, wouldn't it? So why do I tie? I love my grape vineyard. I have a fantastic vineyard. Why would I tie this donkey to it? Who's the donkey? What does the donkey represent? Normally, tying a donkey to, a, to your best vine is not a good idea. But some God has chosen to tie his donkey to his olive tree. Does that help you? Just ask him. Obviously, Christ is announcing that this is his donkey and that he is the Lion of Judah. He's saying, I am untying my donkey from my vine and riding it in here. I am the lion of Judah, I am the Shiloh, it's my donkey, it's my temple, it's my fig tree, it's my vineyard, it's my prophets, it's my fruit, it's my image and it's my people. by the way donkeys are ceremoniously unclean you got to sacrifice something in order to get a donkey clean what do you have to sacrifice Exodus 13:13 13, 13. Leviticus 112. In order to get a donkey clean, you've got to sacrifice a lamb for it. Then the donkey's clean. So I have a young unridden donkey. Thank you for musicians for figuring out I was done. We have the traditional march of the musicians in all of their pomp, circumstance, and glory, in the correct order. But think about the fact that the donkey is unclean and then figure out who in the eight things, is the donkey. If you can't do it, that's why I get the huge sums of money that I get. And I will tell you next week. A prize can be dismissed.